This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to the website sands-trustee.com or better yet, call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation. Find an office near you. Regular thing that we do on the show, a bit of a sort of a client roundup. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's important. uh, And these are things that are just sort of interesting, either clients you've had or interesting stuff that's come in your mail. And that's what we're first going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Something from the Royal Bank, which is so interesting. Well, I thought so, Elaine. I hope the listeners think so as well. And I think a lot of people probably received this notification. Um, But if you're anything like me, it's like the iTunes, you know, end user agreement. You scroll through, you click I agree, you don't actually read any of this stuff, you figure it's going to be forced on you anyway. Right. Uh, But I got this notice from the Royal Bank, and I've got a Royal Bank credit card. It says, important changes to your RBC Royal Bank credit card agreement. Please read and keep for your records, which I'm a diligent person. I'm going to do that. Right. And what they said is, effective August 1st, um, our cardholder agreement is being amended in accordance with new Quebec law. Okay. And so I thought that was interesting. So there's new laws in Quebec. I wonder if these laws are better for consumers or worse for consumers and what the differences are. And as I read through, Elaine, it looks like Quebec's getting a heck of a better treatment than we are here and definitely across the country, it appears. See, my first thought would have been, oh, based on what, what's going on in Quebec, they're making changes to their policy across the country. No. But no, that's no. not the case. No, it looks to me like there's been a change in law. And of course, the, the credit card company has to address it within Quebec. So they're creating essentially two, two sets of rules, one rule for inside of Quebec and one rule for outside of Quebec. And the first aspect that jumped out to me about that was about minimum payments. Interesting. And we talk a lot in this show about minimum payments, that if you're only making the minimum payments, you're essentially trapped in that cycle of debt. You're paying 20, 30% interest. Um, you know, even a small debt, a $6,000 debt can keep you in there for 40 years. Exactly. And I've mentioned it before, but let's go into detail here because it's spelled out in black and white. Here is how a minimum payment is actually calculated for Royal Bank as of now. So your monthly statement will indicate your minimum payment. It will normally be any interest and fees shown in the calculating your balance section of your monthly statement plus $10. Okay. I'm not kidding, plus $10. So what that means, you could have charged a ton of purchases to the cards. What you're going to pay is your interest on yes. things you've already charged long ago, your charges, and $10 is going to draw down your balance. So talk about making a minimum payment and not seeing your debt go anywhere. You might pay $200 and 190 of that is gone. It's just for interest and charges. Right. So that's what everyone is subject to right now. Now, what is Quebec doing about this is what it looks like to me is Quebec has figured out this minimum payment thing. It's a misnomer. Nobody should be contemplating just making the minimum payments and thinks they're doing they're doing okay. So what Quebec has done now, and this is what's disclosed in the cardholder agreement, is if you reside in Quebec, your minimum payment will normally be 5% of the new balance shown on calculating your balance. 5% of the balance outstanding compared to $10, that's a massive difference. What that means is that consumers are going to see a credit card that's 
going to be basically 20 payment plan. You're going to be required to pay it off, you know, 5% a month. You're not looking at multiple years, six years, 40 years or whatever to clear things off. And would that balance, sorry, would that balance include the interest and all that stuff in it as well? Or is that just the balance balance of what you owe? What they've said is it's just the balance balance. So the okay. new balance, which I assume they're going to add to the balance, you know, your interest charges, your finance charges and okay. your purchases, but of the total amount, you're required to pay 5%. So much, much different. Again, really, to me, changing the psychology of a credit card to something that, yeah, you shouldn't plan to carry anything for more than 20 months on a credit card. That, that's right. not a good way to be. And it's interesting, too, that they put a transitional plan in there as well, that if you had a credit card prior to August 1st of 2019, which is all, when all this stuff comes into effect, your minimum payment is going to start at 2.5%, and then it's going to increase in increments of 0.5% annually until 2024. So they're bringing all credit cards up to date on this, but they're doing it basically on a a little bit of a staggered um, type of a, of a way. Super interesting. So mm-hmm. for those of you who always thought that the rest of the country operates under one set of rules and mm-hmm. Quebec operates under another set of rules, you're kind of right. Case in point here. Case in point. And from my point of view as an insolvency trustee, I think it would be far better if minimum payments were actually something reasonable that got you out of debt in 20 months. Right. Something like that, as opposed to something that keeps you in debt for 40 years and you just keep paying it $10 a month at a time and the bank makes a ton of money off you over the years. And it would move people to realize that they're that they're in trouble. Yes. If they can't make those payments, exactly. I'm, I'm sunk here. Yeah. I can't do this. I, I've tried to do it this month and I, I it doesn't look like, like I can do it next month. Mm-hmm. So now I need help. Oh, and that's a brilliant insight. Elaine, because, you know, a lot of the time people come through the door to me when they can't make the minimum payments anymore. And if your minimum payment is 10 bucks plus your interest, that's a lot more runway as opposed to 5% of your balance. As that balance gets big, you're going to see, okay, I've got a problem. Let me get some help. Let's head it off. So it's actually going to help a consumer uh, in a couple of different ways. Yes, I believe so. In Quebec. A yeah. Quebec consumer. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what happens here too. You know, are we going to see credit card delinquency rates rise because, you sure. know, the minimum payments are going to be higher? Are we yes. going to see insolvency rates rise? I don't know. Quebec already has the highest bankruptcy rate in the country by quite a bit. So okay. I'm not sure if this is going to impact that one way or another, um, but I just thought just night and day difference about a law that I think is going to improve things for consumers, more transparency, help them get out of debt, as opposed to what we're all going to be subject to, which is 10 bucks of your hard-earned money goes to reduce your balance. Got it. And you doing the job that you do as a licensed insolvency trustee, will you see data to come in the in the coming months mm-hmm. or year uh, of what kind of impact that will have on oh, Quebec yeah. residents? Yeah, there's okay. national insolvency st- uh, standards that okay. come out. Now, there's always a lag. You know, when this change happens, it'll probably be six to 12 months before sure. any volumes change, but it's something I think a lot of trustees will be keeping an eye on. Absolutely. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as part of our client roundup, oh, let's... Oh, sorry. One more. Oh, one more yeah, piece. Sorry, one buddy. more piece. Oh, no. This one was the big one. The minimum payments really kind of stuck in my craw okay. there. Okay. But a second one, um, you know, I'm not a fan of all these little fees and charges and things. And I know it's where the bank can really make a lot of their extra income, but from a client, you don't often know about these fees until you're charged them. And one that I hear of a lot is the over limit fee. Okay. And the way this is disclosed here is we may from time to time allow the amount you owe us to exceed your credit limit by authorizing transactions in excess of your credit limit. Very nice of them, right? We'll allow you to owe more than your limit. We'll authorize a transaction. Yeah. An over-limit fee will be charged to your account when your balance exceeds your credit limit at any time during your monthly statement. Okay. okay. And how much is that over-limit fee? Well, it's $29. It's not nothing. 
right? You go right. over over your balance, even by fifty dollars, you got a thousand dollar limit. You charge to a thousand and fifty, and they approve that transaction. You're paying a twenty nine dollar over limit fee. Yes. Now, if you keep reading down the fine print here, one of the last sentences: the over limit fee does not apply if you reside in Quebec. <laughs> That's so there you go. Fascinating. Uh-huh. So the banks, wow. I think they're prepared to have a lot less profitable customers in the province of Quebec, and they're going to subsidize it from elsewhere. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Okay. Now we can go to clients. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of clients that have been in my offices recently. And the last couple of months, Elaine, things have just been off the hook. The phone's ringing like crazy. A lot of people are coming in with a lot of challenges. Um, nothing really new or different, perhaps a little more payday loans than in the past, but just a lot of people really feeling stretched. So two examples I wanted to talk about today. Um, you know, the first one was a service industry manager, uh, a gentleman I sat down with. He was age 48 years old and he had accumulated about $21,000 of debt uh, across three different credit cards. Uh, he'd been doing fine until he was rent evicted and the long-term tenancy came to a really abrupt end. And I'm seeing more and more of that. You know, people yes. um, had rents, you know, that was maybe $800 a month. Uh, they're rent evicted and when they can find a new place, it's $1,500 yeah. a month or more. And this is not even in the downtown core. This is, you know, North Burnaby was the, was the situation. Um, so this person ended up incurring uh, credit card debt to make ends meet and his minimum payments are more than $600 per month, which was basically just covering the interest as, as we talked about here. Right. Uh, he was starting to miss payments and was receiving threats that his wages would soon be garnished or seized. So the creditors were calling, they were sending letters saying, you know, our next step is to take legal alternative steps, uh, which would mean that his wages would come. Right. So what did we do? Yeah, what did you do? Well, we, as we always do, we explored all of the available options. You know, we looked at the new rental cost and we figured out, um, you know, this gentleman was just not going to be able to pay this debt down over time. His fixed costs had increased so much every month. Uh, what we did figure out was that he could afford a monthly payment of about $125. Um, that could fit into his budget, still allow him rent, shelter, car, and things like that. And what we worked out was a $125 proposal over a 60-month period would be a total repayment of $7,500. So he walked in owing $21,000 plus interest. Uh, people you know, at the door saying that they're going to be seizing his wages. We filed a consumer proposal for just over a third of the total amount, no further interest, all costs are included, and no worries about being garnished. And I was so happy when we sat down, we signed off on a budget that included all the obligations, included the proposal payment, and I just saw him breathe a sigh of relief of saying, okay, I've made it through the crisis now, I've got the new apartment, it's way too much compared to what I was paying before, but at least my debts have been able to you know, scale down to match. Yeah, and you can handle that, mm-hmm. handle that. Exactly. Excellent. And do we still have time for one more? I think we got one more. Yes. Great. Uh, and this one, uh, definitely this is an aspect that I see a lot of is with student loans. So in this situation, there's another gentleman uh, who was previously self-employed and he had accumulated a bunch of student loans in his past. Um, so he's a 44-year-old male, had a series of self-employed business over the last 10 years, mainly working in the film industry. Okay. I have a lot of clients in the film industry and for the most part, they're typically contractors, which means that they have to remit their own taxes, sometimes their own GST. Yes. And what a lot of employers, or not employers, but I guess contractors, um, are requiring is that you show to them that you've got no CRA debt, that you're sorting out your business every every year with oh. the government, um, because they don't want somebody on set that suddenly gets garnished. They have to deal with things. So a lot of yeah, a lot of film industry clients, um, they, as soon as there's the first sniff of an issue with CRA, they come in to see us and we sort things out. Excellent. Um, in this situation, the gentleman had some severe medical issues that forced him to close down his business, and he was now working as an employee, um, but at a much lower wage than before. 
before. Mm-hmm. Um, he had accumulated about $73,000 of debt, so significantly more than our first example. That's huge. This, yeah, oh, indeed. You can just imagine. And this was across six credit cards, two oh. lines of credit, and a student loan. Oh, you know, man. some months he told me he was manically moving money around. He felt like a day trader just trying to get things to, you know, fit. Yeah. Uh, he had filed his taxes recently and he was expecting a large refund, which, you know, would have really helped. But CRA seized the tax refund because he was delinquent on his student loans. Uh-huh. Um, he was worried that his creditors were going to sue him and he was barely able to carry his minimum payments as his income was around $2,200 a month after taxes. Okay. So what did we do? Yeah, what did you do? Well, we again reviewed all the options. He considered filing for bankruptcy. And what would have happened based on his income and his lack of assets, his creditors would have received nothing back into bankruptcy. He would have just paid the minimum trustee fees and that would be it. Um, Instead, he decided to offer a proposal. And it was a bit of a lower proposal that I thought they might not accept, but we tried it. And he offered a proposal of $18,000 on a debt of $73,000. So about 25% repayment. And it was a proposal of $300 a a month over a term of 60 months. So in sum, we took an impossible debt burden of about $73,000, we reduced it by 75%, and we gave him five years to pay off that reduced balance at 300 a month. See, and that restores so much too, just knowing that I, I am paying my debt, I'm doing everything that I can do, mm-hmm. uh, is pretty extraordinary for this guy. Man, exactly. $73,000, that's a lot. Yeah, and, and just in case there's any questions out there in the listeners, he did have a student loan, and because he had been out of school for more than seven years, the student loan the same as every other debt. It was part of the proposal. It doesn't come out the other side. This dealt with 100% of his issue. Excellent. If any of this is resonating with you, go check out the website for Sands and Associates. It's sands-trustee.com. Their website just chock-a-block full with some great questions and very thorough answers. And if you want to sit down and talk to somebody, that's easy to do as well. 1-800-661-3030 to find an office near you where you can sit down and talk about your situation and see if there's something that Sands and Associates can do. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Hey, for information on any of the services or information that we talk about on the show, go to the website. You can always find more, sands-trustee.com. There's a, a pages of really good questions and really good answers uh, that may fill in some blanks for you uh, and help you figure figures your situation out. We've talk a lot about, um, well, sort of the two options that people have if they're in serious debt, Mm -hmm. bankruptcy, consumer proposals. Mm -hmm. And consumer proposals to me, I remember when we started, it was a brand new term for me. I'd never even heard of it before. And it is a new concept, right? I mean, in a sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's something that's been growing in popularity, you know, year after year, but it's still a very small percentage of the population really know it in detail or have had to take advantage of it. So, yeah, it's still a very unknown type of a term. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to compare the the consumer proposal concept with credit counseling and Mm -hmm. and give you some good information about both. Exactly. So you can make make a, a, a good decision. So at first glance, uh, credit counseling programs and consumer proposals, they kind of sound the same, and mm-hmm. they're not. They're so different. That's right. Uh, and that's what we're, we're going to learn. So can you start by explaining what a credit counseling program is in this province? Because the rules mm-hmm. are different, right? Yeah. D- depending on what province you're in. Yeah. Credit counseling is provincially regulated, typically. Um, so a credit counselor is essentially someone funded, usually by the banks, um, and their obligation is to try to help you work out a repayment plan. 
plan. Um, so what they can do is they can consolidate your debts together, and then usually they're able to negotiate an interest freeze on most debts, uh, which you know sounds amazing. So let's say you got twenty thousand dollars of debt, and you're being charged twenty percent interest. If you go and work with a credit counselor, as long as those are banks that they work with, typically have some financial relationship with, they might be able to negotiate for you. Okay, pay this back over a five-year period, pay us a little bit of a fee, uh, but we're going to be able to save you all that 20% of interest and save you a whole lot of dollars on a monthly basis. Now, the two words that stuck out in what you just said were might mm-hmm. and could. Yeah. Uh, so it's that's not always the case. And yeah. that's the difference. If, if nothing else, that's the difference between uh, a credit counseling consolidation plan mm-hmm. and a consumer proposal. Yeah, that's one of the big differences, Elaine, is exactly what you said, is a credit counseling plan, it's based on a negotiation with individual creditors, and quite often they'll agree to freeze interest as long as they get all the debt back, um, but not everybody will, and they can sometimes opt out at any point. There's nothing legally binding the creditors to be a part of that plan, okay? Where that differs from a consumer proposal, the number one major difference between a credit counseling plan and a consumer proposal is the amount of debt that you have to repay. Okay. So So in a credit counseling plan, because there's no legislation, there's no law, there's nothing to compromise the debt. It's just based on, you know, a best efforts basis to make a deal. Um, The deal is you save the interest, but you have to pay back the principal in full. When you do a consumer proposal, generally you're paying back maybe a third of the debt, maybe a quarter, maybe 40%. It depends on everyone's circumstance, but it's usually quite a bit of a discount from paying all the debts back in full. The reason for that is when you do a consumer proposal, it's a supervised process by the law, and the law gives a trustee the authority to make deals with your creditors based on the fact that if you were to file for bankruptcy, working through the trustee, the creditors are probably going to do worse off than you're offering them this payment plan under a consumer proposal. So in most cases, a consumer proposal is going to be a significant reduction in the amount of debt. It still consolidates the debts the same as a debt management plan through a credit counselor would do, but it's a lot more certainty. Nobody can opt out of it. It's a court-supervised, legally-supervised process. And it's an agreement, right? You're able to negotiate these agreements Mm -hmm. that, and there's a couple of pieces with with this uh, of how of how it's going to be set up, mm-hmm. and the other thing is is that well, let's say not everybody agrees with yeah. this. All your creditors agree, and this is cool with a consumer proposal because well, because all I need is a majority in dollar value to say yes. So sometimes it's the best days in my life when I can say to CRA, you know what, CRA, I know you're not supporting of this proposal, but the person's got debts that exceed yours, and they've all voted for this proposal. So therefore, government, you are bound by the terms of this proposal. You have to stop garnishing or release the bank accounts or things like that. So with a consumer proposal, as soon as a majority of the debt says yes, everybody is dragged along for the ride and they cannot opt out. And that includes all creditors. Uh, Compared to a consolidation plan, People can get in and out and... Oh, yeah. People could opt in or opt out. They can try to interest freeze or not. And we're going to talk a bit later, but government won't even go near a credit counseling plan. Any government debts, you just cannot deal with a credit counselor for those. It's really important. Okay, so let's Mm -hmm. go right to that because Mm -hmm. we talk about that. If you have government debts, you need to be aware consumer proposal will be the only method of debt forgiveness accepted Mm -hmm. for... And these are pretty serious ones. Yeah. Yeah, for CRA, for personal income taxes, for GST, you know, even for payroll debts. If you were a director of a corporation, the corporation had some payroll liabilities. Um, student loans, both provincial and federal. Yeah. Uh, MSP debt, ICBC debt, you know, pick an acronym of debt. Um, yeah. Just about every debt can be included in a consumer proposal where all these ones that we've just listed out, all the government debt, the ICBC and different things like that, you cannot deal with them at all in a credit counseling plan. So I guess it kind of matters what kind 
kind of debt you have. Mm-hmm. So that would help determine whether consolidation plan is the way to go or a consumer proposal. I still think consumer proposal is the way to go. Well, so it does depend on what type of debt that you have and yeah. also the amount of the debt. Because if we're talking a couple thousand dollars and you just need some extra time to pay it back, yeah, probably a credit counseling plan can be fine. You'll be something a little bit more informal. You owe it to a couple of banks, they'll freeze the interest. But let's remember the big key point of a consumer proposal is you're paying back what you can afford compared to a credit counseling plan where you're paying back 100% of the debt, regardless of whether you can afford that or not. That's going to be your monthly payment. So the ability to reduce the debt is the most important thing of a consumer proposal. Excellent. So you talked about the consumer proposal works to write off a portion of a person's debt. So how do you figure that out, uh, Mm -hmm. what the portion is going to be, and then... How does that compare to yeah. the consolidation plan? There's two tests a trustee has to go through, and I'm heavily regulated by Industry Canada. There's less than a 1,000 trustees in Canada. I'm one of them, and I'm very protective of my license. So um, I've got some requirements. for Before I can ever do a consumer proposal, I have to attest that, one, I believe the person can perform the proposal. So whatever the payment is, I've looked at their budget in detail. I've evaluated their income. I know their spouse's income. I know their rent, all those other costs. And we agree collectively, myself and the client, that, yes, we can afford to make this payment and I can see it in black and white that it fits into the budget. So there's no idea if they've got $2,000 of income, it's going to be a $1,500 payment. No. Whatever their income is after their obligations are met, that's when a consumer proposal can fit in there. So that's the first test is can they afford it? The second test is how much do we have to offer the creditors is driven by what would happen in the worst case scenario. So what would happen if the person were to file for bankruptcy, how much of the debt would get repaid back? Quite often, if someone has relatively low income, you know, less than $2,200 per month take-home pay, and they've got very few assets that they might lose in a bankruptcy, them going bankrupt might result in their creditors getting nothing back. And obviously, people would like to get something back more than zero on their debts. So a consumer proposal offering maybe 25% or 30% of the debt compared to a bankruptcy where it would be zero, creditors 95 to 99% of the time will take that higher recovery and allow the person to avoid the bankruptcy. Sure. And that, yeah, it just kind of works for both parties in yeah. that case too. Yeah. It's meant to be the win-win. The win to the creditors is more money. The win to the person is no bankruptcy and a little bit of, of pride of saying, hey, I could have went bankrupt and paid less, but no, I was able to work out a reasonable payment plan and avoid the bankruptcy. Now, I, I know time shouldn't be an issue, but is there, a, is there an advantage time-wise to consumer proposal versus a consultant? Validation no plan? Okay. Not really. Both of them by law have to be completed within five years. So what I like about that is neither of them are the never-never plan. You'll pay forever and never be out of debt. Uh, but both of them are in, uh, encapsulated within inside of five years. I think the last really important thing, too, is everyone's focused on credit ratings. And if you can believe it, Elaine, it's the same credit rating impact of doing a consumer proposal where you pay back maybe a third of the debt or doing a credit counseling plan where you might strain and try and really put yourself through hardship to pay back 100% of the debt. Your credit takes the exact hit the same way regardless of whether you just compromise the interest or compromise a whole lot of the principal as well. Okay. So again, if if you're thinking, oh, I don't know which way to go because there's a lot of information here and we talk about the the uh, the stress that people in debt who are in debt feel, it's hard to 
to figure it all out, especially mm-hmm. when you're under the, the gun, so to speak, or overwhelmed by it all. So go see somebody at Sands & Associates. And I say somebody because everybody's so well qualified mm-hmm. in all of the offices throughout British Columbia. Uh, also check out the website, sands-trustee.com. I think it's terrific. There's great questions, loads of good answers, which will help you then figure out if you want to make that call. And I'll give you the phone number just in case you want to do that right now. It's one 800 661 to get that free consultation, sit down with somebody, figure it all out, as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Hey, for information on any of the services we talk about on the show, don't forget to go to the website, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, give their uh, 1-800 number a call. It's 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation and to find an office near you. So, uh, hottest topic... Everywhere, not just in British Columbia, Lower Mainland, is real estate. Uh, real estate, real estate values. If you're in the market, if you've already bought in the market, you want to get into the market, you want to get out of the market. Uh, largest investment you'll ever make. Uh, our guest is Steve Soretsky, a Vancouver residential realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. Widely considered, now this is pretty nice, Steve, a thought leader in the industry. How do you, how do you take that, being a thought leader? Uh-huh. I don't know. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, trying trying to put out some content here to keep sort of people informed about what's going on. So. And I think that's really a good point that you make because yeah, you are putting out content. You do blog. You do you blog on a regular basis, weekly basis, from what I could see when I went to your website, uh, which is just I'll throw this out and you'll you'll hear it again from us, stevesoretsky.com. And there's YouTube videos as well. You do uh, so just lots and lots of good information. You're a huge contributor to a lot of media outlets. Uh, BN. CNN, CBC, us, of course, CTV, uh, as well as contributor to BC Business Magazine. So you are a guy that knows a great deal about it. And I also like the fact, doing a little bit of reading from you, is that you have... um, you sort of look at it from an interesting position in that it's a real umbrella look. It's not something that you look at it from a whole bunch of different places, but give a pretty good overview for anybody, depending on where they are in the market, coming in, going out, like I say, uh, to get some information that they might not otherwise have. So real estate is what we're going to talk about in this segment. Um, First question, do you want to give it or should I give you well, go you go Blair? Yeah, I think it's the, the million dollar question, so so to speak. I guess that's the average house in Vancouver these days. <laughs> but um, you know, given the rise in debt and obviously the run up in house prices, how vulnerable do you think we've become to a shock or a downturn in the housing market? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously there's been well documented. I don't necessarily need to say it, but obviously you know, record levels of household indebtedness. I mean, debt yeah. to income is what 178, 179. Yeah, we were just chatting about that earlier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Various organizations have flagged that, you know, the IMF, the BIS. So uh, these are definitely reputable people. The Bank of Canada has talked about it. So I think, you know, we have built it up a lot on rising home prices. And as I'm sure you can attest that, uh, 
you know, insolvency rates or sort of bankruptcy and default rates on your house isn't necessarily a str- an indicator of the strength of the market mm-hmm. or uh, the resilience of households. Because as long as house prices continue to rise, you sort of have that buffer where you can refinance your home, you can tap into a home equity lines, so you can sort of extend and pretend. Yeah. And, and Steve, I've seen that just year after year. Um, people that made the wrong financial decision, which is, you know, go crazy, buy the biggest house you can afford, put the down payment on the credit card, so on and so forth. But it was the right decision when the house goes up 30 or 40 percent in the year. So it validated a lot of bad behavior. Um, and then the other heartbreaking thing is just seeing people have had this big run up, you know, maybe they bought the house for 50 or 100,000. Now it's worth 2 million, but they pulled out the equity every five years when they renewed the mortgage. Um, so I've seen a lot of kind of the bad behaviors, which you've been able to hide for a while as the market rises. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. That's the thing is it becomes so ingrained because it's just, it's worked for 20 years now, or it's been a yeah. 20 year bull market where prices just continue to rise. You have tiny little uh, pockets of illiquidity. So, you know, 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. soft market for about, you know, eight or nine months. And that then, was kind of the last time when things yeah, slowed down a bit. And then right? really yeah. backed up. So, when, unlike the US, we kind of, um, you know, skated through the last one. And, and uh, unfortunately, I think right now we've actually probably had the longest correction, I think, than, that we've seen in quite some time. And it's mm-hmm. there's definitely still some legs to it. So. And when do you think that started? Are we talking the last few months is when I've started to hear about, you know, 30-year lows and volumes, things like that. Yeah. Right? I mean, like the the sales, like volumes peaked out in 2016 and then mm-hmm. volumes tend to lead prices. So uh, the sales volumes basically peaked out in 2016. And then over the last year, year and a half, you've started to see prices really start to come off, particularly in the detached uh, single family segment. Uh, but that has started to move over to the condo segment. Uh, you're starting to see some dis- distress with um, people that have sort of stretched themselves with some developers that were building sort of on spec. And so you're starting to see some of the malinvestment, I think, is starting to rise to the top. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of development. So I live on Vancouver Island now. Uh, but when I come into Vancouver and I see the stuff that's currently being built in terms of towers, it's still pretty extraordinary. There's a lot of building going on. And I worry about two things. Not that I not, they need me to worry about them, but the developer for sure, because that's a huge amount of investment that they've made into this property, just let alone the prices when they bought it was extraordinary amount of money and now they're building and then the people who have pre you know who've sold ahead of it going in that were there's cracks right there's cracks in that market now and i worry about um yeah i worry about the people that are being that are going to be affected by that yeah and i i, I do think it's a growing segment that to me that's one of the most interesting parts or segments of the market moving forward mm-hmm. is because that market has really been predicated on rising prices so you know, basically a pre-sale contract is essentially, it's basically like a, a futures contract if you're mm-hmm. in the finance space. So it's essentially you have this claim on an unfinished unit that, you know, two or three years down the road, you're going to close on it. And so what the developers were doing is basically, you know, the prices were rising exponentially 15, 20% a year, 25% a year. And so everybody just assumed that prices would continue to rise. So the developers are saying, okay, well, if you can buy a, a resale unit today, you know, one or two years old for $1,000 a square foot, you know, we'll charge you 1200 bucks a square foot. And then, you know, by the time it's three years out, that will complete and the market will have been up. So it, it will all work out. Right. And so what you're seeing was people were sort of speculating on that. Some yeah. of them borrowing uh, their deposits from home equity, from mm-hmm. friends and family. They don't actually, some of them don't have the capacity to actually financially close on these. And so they were never there was never any sort of plan to close on them. And now obviously with the market going down is they've become very hard to flip 
Yeah. And and you know because those find, buyers aren't there, right? That's where the difficulty comes in, is because the buyers just aren't there. Yeah. So like a couple of years ago, it was very easy to flip a presale contract because mm-hmm. basically what was happening with some of my clients too is like they're looking at the resale market. They're saying, well, there's no inventory. Every time I try to buy a you know a five year old condo, it gets multiple offers. I get outbid. So yep. why don't I go over and look at this guy's presale contract? Why don't I buy that out? And so there was a lot of liquidity there for that to, to happen. But now everybody's nervous about the market. There's a lot more to pick from. So everybody says, well, I want to be able to walk through the unit, mm. take my time. I don't want to buy you know, some guy's piece of paper. Rightly well, so, too. Who, who right? knows how it gets buyer. built in the end, right? Hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's basically what you're seeing. So that market has become sort of illiquid. And so now you're going to run into, I think, some challenges moving forward. And I had heard, you know, some condo contracts, they'd been be assigned, you know, five, six times. And, you know, people would make money at every every step mm-hmm. of the way here. So it seemed like, yeah, just this market was building up, which fundamentally it shouldn't be there, you would think, for the most part, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, the craze of it, right? And mm-hmm. even with the pre-sale market, like, you were pretty much, you're a very lucky person if you get your hands on, like, a pre-sale <laughs> contract. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, right? We saw the stories of people lining up in tents outside pre-sale contract or pre-sale centers, and and uh, it was very secretive, very VVIP. Oh, wow. And, uh, like, certain agents would bring their best clients, and then... Yeah, buy up multiple yeah. units. Realtors would buy up units, mm-hmm. then resell them to their clients. And so it's kind of this like speculative game where it's like as long as you can sort of get your hands on this piece of contract, you were, you know, it was, it was a sure way to make money. Oh, well, but that's changed now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> now, it's definitely, definitely changed now. Sure way to lose money, it seems. Yeah, exactly. In many places. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is because, you know, now as like uh, someone that has a pre sale and you're trying to flip it, is you're actually in almost in direct comparison with the developers. So the developers right now are trying to you know, release product. They're having a tough time at sales centers. So you're seeing you know the, the funny ads, which are like the free avocado toast for a year. But <laughs> you are that, seeing yeah, yeah. Sub- yeah. substantial increases yeah. in incentives to try to get people to buy pre-sales, right? So uh, buyers basically have a lot of options, and, and they're shying away from, from pre-sale sort of contracts and whatnot. Hmm. And I guess in the broader sense, you know, what do you what would you say if someone were to say, you know, well, how's the market right now in Vancouver, the, the real estate market? So we touched on pre-sales a bit, but in a broader sense, you know, things good, bad, it sounds to me like we're kind of on the precipice of a few things here, but I don't know, not being that tied to the industry. So what are you seeing? I mean, it's definitely soft. Uh, the weakness is very concentrated uh, at the higher end. So the higher mm. up you go in the price range, like the softer it is. Um, but even like the one bedrooms have have started to come off in price. I mean, you know, one bedroom condo is probably off ten to fifteen percent. So year over year, yeah, oh, probably wow. from last year. Like it yeah. peaked out early twenty eighteen. So the prices have definitely come off. Uh, obviously, they're still at very high levels. But um, I look at it from like a sales. The sales numbers really speak for themselves. So if you look at January to the end of April, so it's a four month period. Um, if you take that four month and compare it to any other four-month period in our history, it's the slowest four-month period for home sales since 1986. Oh, wow. So it's definitely a slow <laughs> market. If you're trying to sell your house, it's like it's not easy to basically get your money out. And I like, wasn't here in 86, but this was a pretty more sleepy town back in 86, well, right? We're talking none ex- of the scale of Vancouver now, Expo, right? Expo yeah. changed it, right? right I mean, we right. really did. We invited hmm. the world, and the world showed up and said, hey, I want to live here. This is kind of great. Plus, yep. the Hong Kong-China thing, that 
changed it. People wanted to move money around, get money out. They didn't want to stay in Hong Kong. They wanted, you know, they wanted mm. the freedom of not having to to uh, to come under the the Chinese rule. I mean, that was the stuff that we were talking about in 1986. Mm. I watched neighborhoods change very quickly. We went from those really lovely old uh, Carisdale and Shaughnessy homes to these mega you know boxes these six and seven and eight thousand square foot boxes on properties yeah Yeah. and it's like whoa how did that happen Mm -hmm. and of course the people have been there for 30 years or 40 years went what's happening to the city and it's really never stopped since then like you said steve we've had ups and downs but boy the overall look of the city has changed so dramatically since 1986 that's kind of that's how i see it just as a a casual observer right but it's a, but it's an interesting time. I I can't. Uh, I just wonder. You know, I think about what the purpose of this show is, and we're talking about debt and how to help folks. I just wonder how this is all going to impact people in two and three and four years. People mm-hmm. that are going to be coming through your door, uh, either having. Um, yeah, I mean, just having been on the sort of the bad end or the the negative end of of this big change that we're you know, of a soft market, which is going to last, right? It's going to be around for a bit. I think the one thing that I find interesting, I'm sure you probably see it in your business, but like, you know, people always say, well, you know, in terms of people that are foreclosing or whatever Mm -hmm. in their home, like everybody is always under the assumption was like, hey, you know, yeah, that only happens to people that maybe bought at the very peak the last two or three years, whatever. Um, But what I see is a lot in the foreclosure documents. Because I, I pull a lot of titles and mortgage documents and whatnot. It's actually at times there's a lot of people that bought and like, early 2000s that you would think have sort of like this massive equity built up but they should as you see Mm -hmm. as they tap into tap into their home as like a atm you know private lenders maybe they're using that to leverage into pre-sales or buy second and third homes or cars and vacations so it's interesting to see Mm -hmm. from my perspective that you yeah We've been talking with Steve Soretsky, he's a Vancouver residential realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. He's got a lot of really interesting ideas, and he's seen a lot and understands so much of it. So go check out his website. I just want to remind you, you're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're continuing our conversation with Steve Soretsky, who's a Vancouver residential realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. We're talking, obviously, about real estate and uh, the changes, uh, the way the market's been and the changes that we're kind of uh, going through at this point and possibly what's in the future, if we can be so bold as to think that we can discuss that or have Mm -hmm. some ideas about it. Uh, And so we're going to pick up uh, where we left the conversation off. Yes, like we were just chatting a little bit, Steve, about foreclosures. I was going to share my experience in that, you know, in the last five years, I've seen the foreclosure-driven bankruptcies almost dwindle down to nothing. So the only foreclosures I'm seeing these days, if I've got some clients who are in Fort McMurray, their houses burned down, the lenders are going through and getting what they can for them, uh, but I'm seeing nothing in the lower mainland. um, And people are thinking, you know, they often ask me as a trustee, well, you'll be able to tell when the market turns because you'll start to see foreclosures, but there's a big delay. The house is always the last bill that people stop paying, right? And they're going to stop paying 
the credit cards first, stop sending money to the government for taxes, but the mortgage going into arrears, that's always the last thing to go. Um, so we were chatting a little bit just on the break here, Steve, but I'm curious what you're seeing in the foreclosures. And you were saying to me, it's not necessarily the big banks have made bad loans. It's often the secondary market, which is something a lot of people don't have an idea about. So can we talk a little bit about that too, about private lenders that you're seeing and how they might be impacting some foreclosures? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you said, because I look at that. So I have uh, a database where I sort of keep track of the foreclosure numbers. So in Metro Vancouver, and they ha- yeah, they haven't risen. Hmm. Uh, it, to me, it kind of looks like they've probably bottomed out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the foreclosures that I am seeing is generally almost always involved with a private lender. Mm-hmm. So it's usually someone that has a second mortgage or sometimes even a third, sometimes even a fourth mortgage, right. uh, where these, these rates can get upwards of, you know, a second mortgage, you're looking at at least minimum, usually 10%. Wow. Um, you know, thirds can jump up to 15, 16%. Yeah. And so you have these And why people, would someone need a third or a fourth, or even a second, let's just talk about this. I don't uses, know. Right? I think people okay. just tap into their house and I think sometimes it's used for, for reinvestment into real estate. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily on the same property, but could it? Could that mean other properties as well? Sometimes, like, yeah. Sometimes you'll see um, they are cross collateralized, mm-hmm. uh, but not. It's not that typical, right. unless there's like unless there's sort of like a small time developer and they're trying to leverage up all the properties, sure. Mm-hmm. So they can you know get as much money as they can to to go out and speculate on build single family homes. You see that occasionally, but for the most part, um, it looks to me just like people have sort of. These people have over-leveraged themselves, mm. and I think going to a private lender is kind of like your last line of defense, right? Like so you've tried the bank first, and they said, no, we're comfortable where we are, not going to advance anymore. Yeah, and exactly. You maybe, you try to, yeah. maybe you try to tap your home equity line at, you know, three and a half, four percent 4%, and it's like, if you can't do that, then sort of your next line of defense is the, the private lender. So, I, mm. you know, I heard stories and speaking with lawyers that, you know, put some of the deals together and mortgage brokers is, is a lot of the times it is people that were just like stretching to get in the market. They saw the prices going up. They couldn't get necessarily approved at a, at a big bank. So right. what they do is they enter into the one-year term oh, wow. uh, with the private lender at, say, first mortgage at, say, 8%. And uh, their, their plan was basically, well, the market will go up next year. Mm-hmm. I'll then have enough sort of equity built on the property where I can refinance traditionally through, you know, RBC or CIBC or whatever and, uh, you know, pay off my private lender. But what happened was the market didn't go up oh. and it actually kind of flatlined and went down. And so now they're kind of in this position where you're almost stuck at the private lender that you didn't think you were going to be stuck with. Hmm. And in those situations then, so you can't refinance and probably you'd budgeted for a year of those interest payments, not for two plus years. So is that what you're seeing is tipping people into court ordered sales and then having to deal with shortfalls? And, yeah, that's yeah. essentially what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a t- pretty tough situation. Yeah. Same thing with like a lot of the people that, um, you know, build homes for a living, those yeah. like single family houses, they're generally not as well capitalized as like a, you know, a big developer. So what they do is a lot of times they rely on private lending. Right. Um, and so they, now they've built this beautiful, nice, shiny home and they're trying to sell it and, you know, it takes a year to sell. Yeah. And meanwhile, their carrying costs are at interest rates of 10, 12%. Um, it really starts to eat into your profit margins. And I've started to see some of those clients where it's still too early for me to help them because, you know, they've got the house, it's built, they think if it sells for what they think it should sell for, they're going to be fine. They've got no debt problem. But, you know, say they've started at 2.8 and now it's 2.5 and if it gets to 2.2, they're underwater, they've lost all their investment and they've got a shortfall there. So I think there are a number of folks at that point too. Yeah, they've used the private financing to kind of buy some time thinking the market's going to rise. And if it doesn't, that's going to be a tough situation. Yeah. And I think, I think there's still a lot of those guys that are really just holding on right now Yeah, that are just, you know, it's going to sell any, any minute. So I think May here has been busier. June should be a fairly 
busier month from a seasonality perspective. But mm-hmm. uh, as soon as you start to enter those slow summer months, um, you know, if you haven't sold, it's it's going to be. I think it's going to be more challenging. And am I understanding that those people who have the that that one person who's built the home and ready to sell and it's not selling? I mean, there really are small business people, mm-hmm. right? And that's a huge impact on communities when you've got small small businesses not not coming through the way they had planned to. Mm-hmm. That's a big impact, huge yeah. impact. Oh yeah, potentially beautiful houses unoccupied don't sell for a long time. And I'm yep. just thinking about the people who are owning the paper on them, right? And yeah. and and they're then they're sinking, and that's when you see them. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. So, Steve, are you advising people? You know, if they're considering, you know, is now the time to buy or just to stay back? So I was talking to a colleague at my office the other day, and she was going to different open houses, and I was kind of joking a little bit, but I was like, you never want to catch a falling knife, right? You want to be careful. Uh, what's your advice you're giving to people these days? They're still, you know, is it always a good time to buy? Is this a time to stay on the sidelines? <laughs> Yeah, I, I tend to advise my clients on an individual basis. It's hard to give sort of blanket advice because everyone's situation is different and unique. But I do think if you're going to enter the market, you have to have right now. You have to have a long term outlook. You have mm-hmm. to have. I think you have to have at least like a sort of six to ten year window in terms right. of because I think the next couple of years, in my opinion, aren't going to be uh, generous in terms of returns for the housing market. Um, and I think that uh, yeah, there's definitely more downside risks. So it's really just negotiating aggressively not chasing, like I'm still seeing like occasionally, you know, yeah, they're priced a little bit lower on the lower side, but you're still seeing occasionally someone bid into multiple offers, like over asking price. And like, to me, that just doesn't make any sense in this, in this mm-hmm. market, like 33 are low in sales and you're getting involved in, in bidding wars. Like that just, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And there was a time where it did, right? That was the only way you were going to be able to get into the market, but you were going in with, in a different set of circumstances than what we've got now. And that's for really sure. different. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you're seeing, Steve? Any insights um, we should pass along to our to our listeners here? I, I, yeah, well, I think we were talking about the pre-sale market right, before, yeah. and I think yeah. that's going to be the very interesting space to watch in 2020. As we talked about, there was a lot of speculation in that market. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely the valuations were pretty stretched for what people were paying. Right. Um, and Are there th- a ton of units coming online or scheduled to do so in, in 2020? That's a big... Yeah, so big we have like in Metro Vancouver, I think you have just over 40,000 units under construction. That's 40, a lot. That's, that's a record high. <laughs> yeah. so so you do all these units are coming to completion, and a lot of them will start to come into completion sort of into 2020. Yeah. Uh, so end of 2019 into 2020 and onwards. And so a lot of the, I think my main concern is the people that maybe are may struggle with financing because you have the mortgage stress test that also yeah. came into play. But I think the problem is going to be that you unfortunately you just paid in some cases you just paid too much for the presale. And what happens is the bank, when you go to close, the bank reappraises the unit at the time of completion. Right. So the bank's going to say, well, yes, you maybe you paid $1,200, $1,200 per square foot, but we only think it's worth you know eleven fifty a square foot. So we'll lend you based on that amount. Right. And so now you have this shortfall that you're going to have to basically put in more of a down payment. And so obviously, you know, some people I think are going to struggle to come up with those down payments. Mm-hmm. Some will unfortunately have to walk away from their deposits. Of course, that then creates potential lawsuits with the developer. Yeah. And we saw a little bit in 2008, 2009. I remember that, I think, on the Olympic Village, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I remember people walking away from their deposits or maybe getting sued for specific performance on the contract. So that is a risk. It's not just your deposit. You could actually be 
be sued for some damages there. Yeah, exactly. Well. And so I think that you're likely to see that probably, in my opinion, that's probably a 2020 thing. Right. And there are big projects, too, that are coming online. I think about the Burnaby one, uh, the two Burnaby ones, right? The Low Heat Highway project, the Edmonds one. I mean, these are huge, huge projects. Yeah. yeah Multiple towers. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. It's quite something to, as a you know, an observer, right, of the Vancouver real estate market, to go, holy Toledo, there's a lot going on. Yeah, I was so surprised when I moved to Vancouver. I came from Toronto just over 10 years ago, and so many conversations in Vancouver come back to real estate. Oh, and yeah. I think over the next year or so, even more of them are going to come back to real estate. It's kind of stay tuned, watch the space. Right? Yeah, I think yeah. it's going to sort of unravel some of the, the decipher between the good investment and what was the bad investment. So, yeah. you know, I think like any financial market, there's there's winners and there's losers, and uh, so we'll sort of see how things shape up here. We We've been talking with Steve Soretsky's Vancouver residential realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs, stevesoretsky.com. If you'd like to check that out, I, I, adv- I uh, encourage you to do that. Uh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.